So this morning, as I said, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, um, and this isn't going to be your typical sermon because I'm actually going to take the entire book of Philippians as my text. So hey, it's, if you're sitting there going, oh man, well, it's my last sermon at Pillar DC, I'm going to get my money's worth, okay? So here we go, entire book. I'm actually not going to be covering the entire thing verse by verse, um, so I'm not going to read the entire book, but I am going to take the contents of the book as a whole, and so I'm going to be reading selected portions of the letter throughout the sermon, uh, and so uh, the words, because there's going to be so many different uh, portions of the letter I'm going to be reading, uh, the words to the text aren't going to be on the screen this morning, so I would encourage you to follow along in your physical Bibles, and again, if you don't have one, you can grab one in the pew in front of you, uh, and that way you can keep up there. Um, so <clears throat> as a church planter, who's about to be commissioned and sent out by the church that he helped to plant, preaching my last sermon from the book of Philippians seemed entirely appropriate because the book of Philippians is a letter from a church planter to the church that he planted, thanking their continued support of his endeavors to make disciples and plant churches in new places. The, the Apostle Paul planted the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. It, it relays the story of how he began to share the gospel. And people like Lydia and her entire family and then the Philippian jailer and his entire family came to Christ. They believed the gospel. They were converted and a church was born in the city of Philippi. And after that, uh, they sent him out. Paul left and he went to Thessalonica after that and planted a church in Thessalonica and he can continued to travel around. And so Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, probably uh, from uh, in Rome. He was in prison, most likely in Rome. And this letter was, among other things, a thank you letter for the Philippians' continued support of Paul. So they had been supporting him by sending uh, financial uh, assistance. They had been supporting him through prayer, and they had even sent people from their own church to go and to help Paul and to minister to Paul's needs, people like Epaphroditus that you read about in chapter 2. This church was steadfastly supporting Paul, and he was incredibly thankful for it, and he felt a, a unity and a kinship with these people that, that jumps off of the page as you begin to read through this letter. Just listen to how he begins uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, uh, specifically, uh, listen to how he talks about their unity in this work and the fellowship that they enjoyed. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul says that they, they are partners in the gospel and that they are partakers with him of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. And what's, what's interesting is that Paul is speaking here as though they've been by his side the entire time, as though they've been on these missionary journeys with him, right next to him the entire time. And that's because in spirit they were. 
Even though they couldn't all physically go with Paul, they were just as invested in the success of Paul's efforts to make disciples and plant churches in new places as he was. They had a real part in this mission. That's why he says, you are partakers of me, of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. They played a part in this. They played an essential role. In Paul's mind, they were doing this work together. William Carey was a missionary to China, and he once told Andrew Fuller as he prepared to go and take the gospel to China, he said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. Paul's role was to be sent out to go down in the pit, and the Philippians' role was to hold the rope, so to speak. And my hope and prayer is that you all will see your role in sending us out to plant Pillar Church of San Antonio in the same way. That this is a true gospel partnership and we cannot do this without you. This isn't Jared and Andrew just leaving Pillar DC to go to Greener Pastures, to just go take another job somewhere else. This is a joint effort. This is Pillar DC's church plant. And all the fruit that comes from Pillar San Antonio will be because of Pillar DC's partnership, because of Pillar DC's investment in making this happen. Not only is the book of Philippians a thank you letter, it's also filled with encouragements and exhortations from this church planter to his church plant. Paul loved this church deeply, and so he wanted to point them to what mattered most so they could share in his joy. So this morning, I want to highlight five of those encouragements and exhortations for you. The title of this sermon is Encouragements and Exhortations from a Church Planter to a church plant. These are things that I want to remind you of as you prepare to send my family and Andrew's family out just as Philippi sent out Paul and his team. So let me pray and then we're going to jump in. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray now that as we read your word out loud that you would build up your saints, that you would encourage this church, that they you would just give, give us eyes to see just how amazing um, these past three years have been and all that you've done. I pray that we would just have a sense of gratitude this morning, God, for all that you've done in and through this body of believers. And I pray that you would increase the members of this church's confidence in you and in your word, that they would be confident heading into the future, knowing, God, that just, just thinking about all that you've done despite all the obstacles we face, despite our weakness, despite the fact that we're not a very big church, and yet I think about all that you've done, and why would we ever be afraid? Why would we ever need to be anxious? Why would we ever need to be discouraged? Lord, I pray that you would encourage and build up this congregation this morning. Holy Spirit, you know exactly what each one of us needs, so come and minister to us now, and I pray that if there's anyone here that it does not know you, that has not been born again, that today would be the day of salvation and that you would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first encouragement or exhortation I want to give you this morning is to prize Jesus over everything. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 20 to 25. So Paul, remember, he's writing from prison and he doesn't know whether or not he's going to live. He might die. He doesn't think he's going to, and you kind of get that sense 
uh, as you continue in this letter. He's pretty sure that God's going to continue to prolong his life. But either way, here's what Paul says. In, in verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, whether I live or I die. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul was in prison and he knew that uh, his life was at stake, but he didn't think that he was going to die. But he said, either way, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he, he says that, just that, that astounding statement in verse 23 that's always just jumped out to me. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That, that statement sounds strange to the ears of the world, to an unsaved person. Because how on earth could death be gain? How on earth could, could the loss of everything that I hold dear possibly be gain? Most of the world spends its energy trying to delay or to avoid death, fearing its inevitable approach. But not Paul. He said, it would be far better for me to depart, to die, so that I can be with Christ. And yet what I love about what he says here is that he also understood it's not all about him. It wasn't time to depart yet. He said, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Even though I, I would love it if Christ would just call me home right now, I'd get to go into my glory, into my greatest joy, but not yet because of you. Because I'm still here for your progress and your joy in the faith. See, Paul understood that God had given him a life, and God gave him that life so that he could pour it out in service to Christ and to the people he was reaching with the gospel. And this all sounds crazy to the world because you must be born again for any of this to make sense. The natural man is so soaked in the flesh and in sin that, that he can't imagine something better than fast cars or a new house or a wife and three kids with a minivan. That's as good as it gets, right? Wrong! It gets infinitely better. That's what Paul is trying to say to us right here. You were made to know God. And the gospel makes that possible. What's our mission statement? Helping people know Jesus. That's why we're here. And the gospel makes it possible. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died. The righteous for the unrighteous, so that, why? So that He might bring us to God. This implies that at one time, we were separated from God. Due to our sin. Our sin separates us from God. It leaves a chasm, it leaves a gap that we cannot cross. Because He is holy and righteous and we are not. And there's no amount of good works you could do to ever bridge that gap. To ever make up for your sin. You have a sin debt. The penalty for your sin is death. And there's only two options. Either you can pay that debt for eternity in hell separated from God or Christ can pay it for you. 
through His atoning sacrifice on the cross. Christ died. The righteous for the unrighteous. He shed His blood so that by faith alone, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you could be forgiven of your sins and receive eternal life. You can accept this free gift of allowing Christ to pay your sin debt for you. If you've never done that, let me plead with you to do that this morning. Who are you trusting in for your salvation? Where does your hope lie? What will you say when you stand before God on judgment day? You never know. You may stand before Him tonight. Tonight you may take your last breath and you'll find yourself standing before Almighty God to give an account for your life. And what will you say? The only right answer will be, I have have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. That is my only hope. That is my only hope. If you have not made that decision, I would urge you to do so today. To repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus. And for those of you who are born again believers, my prayer is that you will clearly see that you were made to be satisfied in Christ. He is the treasure hidden in the field that's worth selling everything to have. We exist to know Jesus. That should be our top priority from the moment our feet hit the ground rolling out of bed in the morning to the moment we climb back into bed. So I'll ask you, brothers and sisters, where are your thoughts gravitating towards when you're daydreaming? Where is your time going? Where is your money going? Does does your bank account reflect that your priority is to know Jesus? Does your calendar reflect that your priority is to know Jesus? If it doesn't, and if you're giving your time and your resources and your energy to other things, let me plead with you to remember that the only thing worth living for is Christ and to know Him. There's nothing better than Him. This is not to shame you or to try to beat you into submission to going, you need to start spending more time at church. You need to know this is, I'm inviting you to drink from a never-ending spring that'll never run dry, that'll actually quench your spiritual thirst. This isn't an order, this is an invitation to come to Christ because He satisfies in a way that nothing in this world can. Nothing. This is why Paul concludes in Philippians 3, 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He said, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only because Christ is all. So treasure Jesus by earnestly pursuing him, abiding in him and allowing his word to abide in you. And treasure Jesus by being willing to go anywhere, do anything and give up anything he calls you to. Christians are servants of Christ. He died for us so that We would no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. So prize Jesus over everything. The second exhortation is prioritize the advance of the gospel. Prioritize the advance of the gospel. Look at verses 12 to 14 in chapter 1. So Paul, writing from prison, he says this. He says, I I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So, Paul's imprisonment actually opened a door to share the gospel with the entire Praetorian Guard or Imperial Guard, which was Caesar's elite military unit. So, his opponents tried to throw him in jail to stop the gospel from spreading, and their attempts to stop the gospel from spreading actually just caused it to spread further and faster, which emboldened the church even more. And then in, in the next couple verses, in verses 15 to 18, Paul explained that there were not, not only was, had he been thrown in prison, but there were even some Christians who were preaching the gospel, but they were trying to discredit Paul's ministry. And they were trying to gain more influence. They were jealous of Paul. They were preaching from selfish ambition. So what does Paul think about all this? He tells us in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's freedom was stripped away, and his reputation was being attacked. But rather than grumble or doubt God's goodness, he rejoiced. Why? Because he prioritized the advance of the gospel. More than his own reputation, more than his own comfort, more than anything. You see, Paul was placing his joy in something that he could not lose. The gospel can't be stopped. You can chain up an evangelist, but you cannot chain up the gospel. And Paul knew this, and so he could rejoice in any occasion, even when his reputation was being attacked while he sat in prison. Because as he sat in prison, the gospel was just running rampant and spreading like wildfire. Paul was able to see how God was actually using his suffering to open a door for the spread of the gospel, and that just made him ecstatic. It gave him even more confidence. It gave the entire church even more confidence in the power of the gospel. What if you started seeing your suffering that way? What if you saw your suffering not as an obstacle to your joy, but as an opportunity for the spread of the gospel? How would that change things? For your life. How would that increase your joy? What if, like Paul, you cared more about the gospel spreading than defending your own reputation or your own rights? What if you prioritize the advancement of the gospel? That's my desire for Pillar DC as a church and for each of you individually. That you would care more about the glory of God and the souls of those who are perishing than your comfort or your reputation or your plans. Placing your joy in the advancement of the gospel is, is an investment that won't disappoint because the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Now, this is why, by the way, we don't need to be intimidated by the rapid secularization of our society as if God is losing influence. It's easy to look around, to look at the news, to, you know, see just the way that society is going morally and to become discouraged or to even panic if you're a follower of Jesus. But let me just remind you, God is not losing influence. 
God is not worried or concerned about what's happening in Washington or in our schools or in Hollywood. He is sovereign over it all. He has planned it all and he will have the victory. I know that this is a hard place to share the gospel. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a hard place. It can be a hard place to be a Christian. Many of you work in hard environments to be Christians. I've shared in the the discouragement of being rejected or of being met with apathy when you're trying to share Jesus with somebody. But church, I just want to remind you that the word of God is still living and active. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for all who believes, both Jew and Greek. And you must not stop in your efforts to share the gospel. If anything, they need to be ramped up. If anything, we need to have a renewed zeal and a renewed vigor because every day that passes, we're one day closer to Christ's return. Paul says, make the most use of the time because the days are evil. Jesus still has other sheep who have not been brought into the fold here in Washington, D.C. Sheep that he died for. Sheep that he spilled his blood for. And we must fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by enduring whatever we have to endure so that they might hear the gospel and believe and be saved. That might mean, whether that means being thrown in prison or having our reputations tarnished or being mocked or rejected, whatever it takes, we must take the gospel to them. Even if there's only one left in the entire city, it's worth it to endure 10,000 rejections to go and find the one. Did Jesus not say that he left, he leaves the 99 to go after the one? That's why we endure suffering. That's why we endure rejection. That's why we endure persecution. That's why we endure the persecution of being rejected or of apathy or the cold shoulder because there are sheep that Christ bought and paid for with his blood here. And we need to go and find them. But it's going to it. Paul said it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts 14. We can't avoid that. Listen to, listen to the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. He says this to Timothy. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I wanted to read that passage to you to show you that I didn't just make everything up that I just told you over the previous two minutes. That's straight from the Bible. Paul, what, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, I'm, I'm bound with chains. I'm suffering for the gospel. But the gospel is still advancing. And if I have to be thrown in prison, so be it, so that I can bring the gospel to God's elect, so that they might hear it and be saved. Because the means by which God is going to save His elect is as His church proclaims the gospel, and as they hear the gospel and believe it and are born again. That means we may have to endure suffering to do that. Paul says, I'm willing to endure that because it's worth it. Church, it is worth it. So don't stop sharing the gospel. Don't get overwhelmed with discouragement because we're surrounded by unbelief. That should not surprise us. That should not surprise us. Let's have compassion on the people around us who are lost and without hope in this world. They're not our enemies. We don't need to get into a culture war. We need to share good news with them.
We need to share good news with them. Christ has died for sinners, and He's risen from the dead. All right. So, prize Jesus over everything. Prioritize the advance of the gospel. Thirdly, put others first. Put others first. Many of you remember, we prayed, if you were here from the beginnings of Pillar DC, uh, we prayed Philippians 2, 3, and 4 over this church and over this congregation uh, over and over again, where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we, we prayed that over and over because uh, at the time we were merging two congregations together. The Main Avenue campus of McLean Bible Church and Pillar DC 1.0. And we knew that it would take humility and selfless sacrifice to lay aside our personal preferences for the greater good of planting a healthy church in southwest Washington, D.C. And I'm so grateful that God has answered that prayer because... Um, it could, have, it could have gone poorly when we planted this church, and it didn't, by God's grace. And we've enjoyed tremendous unity. Um, and I've just been so thankful for how welcoming this church is and how hospitable this church is. But we can't take these things for granted because Satan doesn't rest, and he's always looking for an opportunity to sow discord or disunity within the body of Christ. And the grounds of this exhortation from Paul to count others more significant than ourselves is in the example of Christ. We serve this way because this is how Christ served us. Paul goes on in the next few verses. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's, that's called agape love. It's the love that God has for us, and it's the kind of love that Paul says we are to have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Agape love is willing to suffer loss to seek the highest good of another who deserves the opposite. Agape love is willing to suffer loss to seek the highest good of another who deserves the opposite. This is exactly what Christ did for us. He willingly entered into suffering to seek the highest good of unworthy sinners like you and me. As you serve one another in this way, you will be a light in a dark world. It's this kind of love that causes Christians to stand out. This is what separates us from the world. When Peter calls us to be holy because... He is holy. Peter doesn't just have in mind like sexual purity. He, I think actually even more so, he has in mind things like laying your lives down for one another in selfless sacrifice. That's countercultural. That's going to stand out in the midst of a world that is self-seeking and self-serving. And we're called to show this love to a lost and dying world around us by providing for the poor and taking in orphans and caring for widows. But this kind of love should first and foremost be present amongst our church family. 
So are you seeking the highest good of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you putting their needs ahead of your own? Are you willing to be inconvenienced or to go without so that others can benefit? You know, this, where this starts, you can't love one another if you don't have regular intimate fellowship with each other. If you're not really involved in each other's lives. The bond with your brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be the strongest bond in your life. That ought to be the strongest relationship in your life. That's not hyperbole. That's straight from the Bible. Jesus, when Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers and sisters came to get him because they thought he was losing his mind, he was told, hey, your mother and your, your brothers are here to get you. And he looked around at his disciples and he said, no, these, these are my mother and my brothers and sisters. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. One of the best ways that you can love your brothers and sisters in Christ is by laying down other options you could use your time for to be around them. The fellow members of this church need your presence and they need your gifts. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 exhorts, says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Guys, we, we gather here not so that you can be spectators watching the professionals do the work of ministry, but so that you can do the work of ministry. The conversations that take place before and after the service, the prayer and the confession of sin that happens in a small group, the new discoveries made in God's Word in a discipleship meetup, it all serves to build each other up. That's, it's not about you, ultimately. Like, I'll just be honest, it's not about you. Like, the worship service is not designed to cater to your needs. This is not a, a, a religious good and service. This is about all of us coming together and putting the needs of everyone else in this room ahead of our own and using our gifts to serve one another. It's the same reason we have small groups. It's not about you. It's not so we can design the most convenient experience we, we go so that we can build one another up, so that we can uh, it, uh, stir one another up to love and good works. Discipleship meetups are not ultimately about you. Like, yes, we benefit from those relationships, and we ourselves are built up spiritually, but the mindset, this kind of agape love that God calls us to show, that Paul is calling us to show, is to consider others more significant than ourselves. It's laying down our preferences for the good of others. That's how Christ has loved us. That's how we have to love one another. It starts by prioritizing being around each other. Considering others more significant than ourselves goes beyond just spending time together, though. That's, that's the starting point. My brother who offended me needs to see Jesus' grace in me more than I need to be vindicated. My sister needs this financial assistance more than I need to upgrade to a new car. My church family needs me to use my spiritual gifts this morning more than I need some time to myself. My brother or sister needs to be encouraged by my example of sharing the gospel more than I need the comfort of avoiding rejection. The church is a community where the love of Christ is put on display in the way that we love one another. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. 
So pillar DC, love one another. Lay your lives down for one another. If, if you, and you know who you are, I mean, you're, you're sitting there, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, you know. If you know that you haven't really been prioritizing gathering with the body, using your gifts to serve one another, if you've kind of been distant and you haven't been present, then recommit to doing so this morning. Recommit to that for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of the souls of your brothers and sisters in Christ who need you here, who need you here. Please do that. All right, fourth, preserve the gospel. Preserve the gospel. One of Paul's concerns for the Philippians was that there were people who were teaching that you had to hold to the Jewish law and be circumcised in addition to trusting in Jesus for salvation. So he had some strong words at the beginning of chapter 3 for them. And, and, and he then goes on to list all of his credentials, basically saying, if anyone could be saved for being a good Jew, it's me. But even I threw all of that away so that I could gain Christ. In verse 8, again he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now we might not be in danger here today from false teachers running around saying that you need to be circumcised if you want to be saved. I don't think that's a popular false teaching today here in Washington, D.C., but there are constant threats to the gospel message. Uh, false teaching has never been more available than it is now. It's a Google search or a YouTube video away. It's easy to find them. They're all over the place. So, brothers and sisters, remember that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, and he is an angel of light. The scriptures call him. He is deceptive. Do not be deceived. Do not ever take the gospel message for granted. We never graduate from our need to continue hearing the gospel week in and week out because we're prone to wonder. Elders, while all of the church is tasked with guarding the good deposit entrusted to them, this is a particular charge for you. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What a weighty text. How, how precious a local church is. He obtained this church with his own blood. Each of these sheep, Christ purchased with his own blood. May we never, ever be careless with them. Ever. God forbid that we would ever be careless with one sheep. And in the next verse, Paul says this. He says, I know that fierce wolves will come in. I know it. Now, if you were a shepherd and you were guarding a sheep pen of innocent, helpless sheep that can't do anything to defend themselves, and you knew without a doubt that wolves were going to come in, you would be vigilant, would you not? You would be vigilant. Be vigilant. Don't let your guard down. Don't take the gospel for granted. Preach it every Sunday morning from this pulpit. Preach the whole counsel of God. Never grow ashamed of doing so. 
Preach the gospel in your small groups. Preach the gospel in your disciple meetups. Defend the gospel at all costs because souls are at stake. Preserve the gospel. Lastly, place your trust in God's provision. Place your trust in God's provision. The church in Philippi partnered with Paul in the gospel from day one. They faithfully sent him financial support and they even sent one of their best, Epaphroditus, to go and help Paul. Listen to Paul's words here as he thanks them for their generous support in chapter 4. He says, He says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I'm in verse 15, by the way. Then he says in, in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What's so striking about the giving of the church in Philippi is that they were not well off financially. Paul actually talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He was writing to the Corinthians and he used the churches in Macedonia as an example of sacrificial giving to encourage the Corinthians to give because he was collecting an offering to help the church in Jerusalem as they were enduring a famine. And so he points to the example of these churches in Macedonia and Philippi happened to be the leading city of the colony of Macedonia. And so Paul is, is talking about the giving of, the, of, of these Macedonians, of these Philippians. Listen to how he describes it in 2 Corinthians 8, 2-5. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Wait, what, Paul? Say that again? That makes no sense. Let me read that. And they're in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And then he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And to this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Severe test of affliction, a.k.a. persecution. Extreme poverty. And yet, all of that overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They begged for the favor of being able to give above and beyond their means. Wow. Things were, were not exactly stable or comfortable there in Philippi, were they? And from a pragmatic standpoint, people would have looked at their situation and asked, um, excuse me, are you sure this is a good time to be increasing our giving? Like, shouldn't we be decreasing our giving right now? Kind of circle the wagons, make sure everything's good here, batten down the hatches here in Philippi, ride out this storm. Maybe one day when we got a bunch of excess, when we got a lot more, then we can think about giving. 
Then we can think about being more generous. Then we can send out Epaphroditus. We need Epaphroditus here right now, guys. We need to build up our coffers. We need to build up our reserves. What do they do? No. Let's give more. Let's send our best workers to go. The churches in Macedonia didn't think pragmatically. Why? Because they believed God. That's what drove them to do this. They believed that God can supply all their needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And they knew that that was how Christ had loved Him because Paul grounds all of this in the gospel. Later on in 2 Corinthians 8, in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Jesus became poor so that through His poverty we could become rich. And He says, now you go and do likewise. And here in Philippians 4, Paul is encouraging this faithful church with two reminders regarding their sacrificial giving to His ministry. He's telling them, like, I received the gift you've given me. I'm good. You don't need to send me anything else. Thank you so much. Even if, and he's like, even if you wouldn't have sent a gift... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned the secret of being content. Thank you for the gift. It blessed my soul. I'm well supplied. And here, I want to remind you of these two things. His first argument is that as Christians give sacrificially, they store up treasure in heaven. And by the way, the reason I'm, I'm emphasizing this and spending time on this is because, look guys, Pillar DC is not a big church. We don't have the biggest budget in Washington, D.C. We're not the biggest church in Washington, D.C. And yet you're sending out some of your primary leaders you're sending out your pastor. You're sending out the McDaniel family who's been instrumentally involved in the life of this church. And later this year, you're sending out the McDermott's who are also going to be coming and help us. And they're both deacons. That's a sacrifice. That's not easy. What's God's promise to you? God has some precious promises to you, Pillar DC. In verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He says that their giving results in fruit that increases to their credit. The idea here is, is it's like an account with compounding interest that just increases exponentially over time on into eternity. So as you give sacrificially, it pays dividends in eternity. You're storing up treasure in heaven. That's how Jesus describes it. As you give sacrificially, as you lay down your own rights, as you lay down your own goods for the good of others, friends, you will be richly rewarded. In eternity. You will. It's right here in the Bible. That's not Jared. That's Bible. Paul is thinking about the day that we will stand before Christ and give an account for how we have stewarded the resources He has given us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be found with a full bank account of money that I've been hoarding or of resources or of time that I've been hoarding when I stand before Jesus. I want to keep giving it away. And Pillar DC, that's what you're doing. When we invest those resources into the advancement of the kingdom, we will reap exponential returns in the form of treasure in heaven. That's the first encouragement that Paul says. He, he's saying, when you send out, you're not suffering loss. You are actually gaining by sending out. You're actually gaining by sending. His second argument is that even as you do that, God will supply all your needs in the here and the now according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. He's not just going to forget about you 
and lets you go without until you get to heaven. Well, tough luck. God, you know, you're just going to have to be without right now. No, no. Even in the here and the now, God will supply all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything that we have comes from Him. So we cannot possibly outgive God. Pillar DC, you can never possibly outgive God. That's why from day one, we've set a tone in this church. Look at our values. The Great Commission is one of our values. Bold evangelism is one of our values. We are going to make disciples. We are going to plant churches. We are going to give sacrificially, no matter how much it costs. We set a tone. We made a decision that we were going to do that. And I'm so grateful and I'm so proud that we have done that and that we're continuing to do that. And my promise to you is that Pillar San Antonio is going to do the same. We're taking that same DNA with us and we're going to do the exact same thing at Pillar San Antonio. And Lord willing, we're going to be able to have the joy of doing at Pillar San Antonio a few years from now exactly what you're doing today. Sending out some of our best. Blessing them with ample resources to be able to go plant more churches in places where there's need. I just I want you to understand, church, that sending out missionaries and resources is not a net loss. It's actually a net gain. It's not a sign that things are declining or that we're losing momentum. It's actually a sign that God is at work, that the Holy Spirit is stirring up His people to respond to the call of God. Just, I just want you to think with me about what God has done in less than three years, all taking place, most of which has taken place during a COVID pandemic. Just, just think about this about how incredible this is. If you want to know, if you're, if you're wondering, is our church healthy? Well, you can judge for yourselves after we consider some of these things. I mean, the first obvious thing is that in less than three years, God somehow miraculously blessed us with our own building on Capitol Hill, one of the most expensive places in the entire world. That's crazy. You realize that, right? We have no business owning a building here. I still don't know how it happened. It literally fell into our laps as a gift from God. That's crazy. Guys, there are church plants that have been laboring for 15 years here that aren't anywhere close to having their own facility. There are some churches that never will. And God bless us with this. That's just amazing. But that's just the smallest thing to me out of all the amazing things God's done. We've baptized 22 new believers over the past three years. We've been able to see 22 people pass from darkness to light, from death to life. And many of them we've got, amen, yes, praise the Lord, yes. Some of them are still here growing. Some of them we've gotten to send off all around the world, whether it's through the military or taking jobs in other places. Baptized 22 new believers. This church gives away over $50,000 per year for the spread of the gospel around the world in missions and church planting. $50,000. Guys, we've got 58 members. That's awesome. That's amazing. Do you realize that? That is astounding. I'm so thankful for that. I can't tell you how proud that makes me. That's just amazing. And then this fall, we're going to send out our first international missionaries to the nations. The Derbyshires are going to be sent out to go to Thailand later this fall. We get to send missionaries as a sending church. We're we're doing the Great Commission. And then in August, we're sending one of our church members, Kendall, to go to missionary training school because she said yes to lay her life down to go to an unreached people group. Do you realize how awesome that is? Do you realize how monumental that is that we're raising up 
missionaries from within and sending them out. And then you're sending three families out to plant a church this summer, including your pastor. We're planting a church. We're going to be a church planting church. Look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. And, and just consider how few resources we've had to do it. Talk about five loaves and two fishes being multiplied, right? I mean, we're not the most impressive people, right? Like Paul told the Corinthians, you guys weren't the, smart, you guys weren't the sharpest tools in the shed, right? You weren't the brightest crown in the box. But God chose what is weak and what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and the strong. I just see that all over my life, I can tell you that. My mentor and my friend, the guy that led me to the Lord, Joshua Harris, this is probably a little bit poor taste, but he, he always jokes and says, he says, uh, I'm, on the, I'm on the little yellow bus to heaven. That's what he would always say. Like, I just, I need help. I need Jesus' help, big time, because <laughs> I'm a mess. And I know that. I'm a mess. I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I blame Joshua. Friends, what God has done is remarkable. And, and the reason I wanted to point you to that and to remind you of that, it's the same reason that when, when, I'm not comparing myself to Moses, trust me, but when Moses was getting ready to die, and he, and he writes the book of Deuteronomy, he preaches the sermon in Deuteronomy, he reminds God's people of God's law, first of all, and then he reminds them of, of what God did. He reminds them of the Exodus. He reminds them of how God delivered them and provided for them over and over, and over, and over again, because Moses knew that God's people were going to continue to face challenges, they were going to continue to face difficulties, that they were going to be tempted to become pragmatic, they were going to be tempted to go, we need to bat down the hatches, things are getting bad, oh no, some families are moving away, oh no, what's going to happen, oh no, people are rejecting the gospel, and, and he's like, nope, nope, remember what God has done. He is still on the throne. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Do not lose heart or become discouraged. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. That's what I want to do for you this morning is point you back to what God has done to encourage you so that as you send out Pillar San Antonio, you're sending in confidence. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so Pillar DC gets to enjoy the blessing of sending this morning. It's definitely, there will be a sense of pain and loss in sending out my family and the McDaniels and the McDermott's to San Antonio, for sure. I'm not, I don't, I'm not minimizing that. I hope you don't hear me saying that. I'm not minimizing that. It's going to hurt. Like when Paul left, uh, said goodbye to the, uh, the elders at Ephesus, the end of Acts chapter 20, it says they all knelt and prayed and they wept. They wept because their sorrow in parting. But the good news is, is that unlike Paul, when he told them, you'll never see my face again, you will see my face again, Lord willing. You'll see Andrew's face again because this is a partnership and we hope that you'll come and see us and we're certainly coming back here to see you. As you prize Jesus over everything, as you prioritize the spread of the gospel, as you put others first, as you preserve the gospel, and as you place your trust in God's provision, God will continue to bless the work of this church.